Breaking news, this just in. Lincoln triumphs over Hampton, 13-6. Virginians hold opponents almost even for three periods at the polo grounds. 20,000 watch the games. Sidner scores on Hampton fumble in first. Harmon intercepts pass for a second touchdown. Yes, breaking news, 93 freaking years ago. And that, folks, is the beginning and short end of a career in radio broadcasting. No, no, hold up a minute. For all the old heads, that was my best Ted Baxter <laughs> imitation from the Mary Tyler Moore show between 1970 and 1977, when he was really the star of WJMTV, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The only reason I actually know about that show is because you made me watch like all seven like seasons on like Hulu one time, so... Thank you. Okay, so you were, you were blessed. So, welcome to another edition of An Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill, and... And as always, I'm Veronica A. Carr, and we have something exciting and fun and interesting to share with you today. And what might that be? A November 2nd, 1929 game at the New York Polo Grounds. Yes, the New York Polo Grounds for all of you older New Yorkers who might have fond memories of the Polo Grounds. At a football game played between Lincoln University of Pennsylvania and Hampton. Okay, so if I throw out that this is between the Lions and the Pirates, are people going to understand what that's about? No, this is not the Detroit Lions and the Pittsburgh Pirates, and those are two different sports, so no. (laughs) Okay, so the Lincoln University Lions, obviously that's their mascot, and the Hampton Pirates. So let's just get into this. What what led us to this podcast? Well, what led us to this podcast is a 1929 picture of the Lincoln University football team photographed by Samuel W. Oaks, who lived at 37 South 5th Street in Oxford, Pennsylvania, where Lincoln University is located. Couldn't some people enunciate that differently? We've gone online and we've looked at different pronunciations from howtopronounce.com and YouTube. And we've seen oaks, we've seen ox, and we've even seen och. So however you feel like pronouncing it, O-C-H-S, have at it. So this white photographer is capturing the essence of black life at this HBCU In the 1920s and 30s. Is that not correct? That is. And just an aside, actually, there were a number of white photographers like Oak who actually captured life at Lincoln from its embryonic phase in the late 1850s and 1860s through the Depression era of the 1920s and 30s, even up until the 50s and 60s at Lincoln. Because unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, the only photographers available that were nearby to capture what happened at Lincoln were the white photographers. So they capture class photos, graduations, they captured individual photographs, they captured plays, they captured sports teams, and thankfully Ox captured this lovely picture of the 1929 football team. Let me digress for a moment. The the part that's missing from that conversation is the amateur or vernacular photography that the actual participants of Lincoln could do for classmates, for professors, for, for parents, and for visitors. So thanks to the interest in documenting their own journeys, today society has examples that were taken by the African-American community at Lincoln University. Thankfully, because like you said, of vernacular photography and the popularity of having your own camera now and being your own photographer, we could see the everyday life. So people in their dorm rooms, people practicing various sports teams at dances and events at chapel. 
walking around the campus or posing with their stylish clothing from the period? Well, we are fortunate to have the uh, Locket collection from the early 20s that have a nice combination of real photo postcards and quite a bit of amateur shots, which are just absolutely informative and priceless. And one last note on this, if you do get a chance to visit our Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, you will see a few examples of the Locket collection where you see these very stylishly dressed students on campus posing with each other. And maybe at some other point we will do something just on that family, the two brothers that were at Lincoln and their connections with the rest of the country. It's yet another fascinating story of some successful graduates of Lincoln University in so, Pennsylvania. So we've deviated. So back to our original topic. So Which we're, was? We're talking about a November 2nd, 1929 game at the New York Polo Grounds. It was a historic game for so many reasons, but for the simple fact that it was the first black college football game played at the New York Polo Grounds. So which Polo Grounds were this? Because people aren't clear, including yours truly, there were several iterations of the Polo Grounds. So break it down for us. So there were four different Polo Grounds. Who knew? Who knew? Right. (laughs) The one that Lincoln and Hampton played at was Polo Grounds number four which lasted from 1911 to 1963. It was at 157th to 159th Street, otherwise known as Coogan's Bluff. And it was actually located off the Harlem River. Okay, so also on a serious note, talk about the date. So the date's significant for a variety of reasons, but number one being the fact that it's literally a week later after the official stock market crash of 1929, which plunges the country into the Great Depression. So half of America already is suffering. Jobs are being lost and so forth, and manufacturing is down. So to actually be able to play a game and then draw the attendance that the game did, it was 20,000 people, and now it's a probably conservative estimate that came to watch the game who traveled from all parts of the country, whether they were connected to Lincoln or Hampton, or just wanted to be at this very high-profile historic game. And let's look at what had to occur in order to have these two significant HBCUs being able to play in 1929 at the Polo Grounds. Well, originally, Hampton and Lincoln were both scheduled to play different teams. Hampton was actually going to play North Carolina A&T, and Lincoln was actually going to play Morgan, now Morgan University. And those two colleges decided that instead of keeping those original games scheduled, they wanted this historic game to take place. So they switched their schedules around in July of 1929 to allow Hampton and Lincoln to play in November of 1929. So you see a level of cooperation and camaraderie with regard to these HBCUs. You do, which is actually great because... In this July 1929 article from the Baltimore Afro-American, it says that much depends on the game. The opportunity for colleges to secure either the Polo Grounds or Yankee Stadium, yes, the Yankee Stadium, for future games will be largely determined by the outcome of this venture. For this reason, every possible effort will be made to conduct this game successfully. Hampton and Lincoln both have large followings and strong alumni associations in New York City which will operate with their institutions to stage this game. So this was a whole effort between several different colleges, the alumni associations, and greater black community that loved and followed these two institutions, not just for their football games, but for what they represented to black America. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Did I win the prize? No, that, that's the <laughs> alarm going off. What organization are these two teams a part of? Well, they're a part of what is now known today as just simply the CIAA. Then in 1929, it was known as the Colored Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Today, it's known as the Central 
Intercollegiate Athletic Association. The CIAA is the oldest African-American athletic conference. The CIAA was established in 19... So Hampton and Lincoln were actually original members of the CIAA because the CIAA was founded on none other than Hampton's campus. So look at all of the interconnections that are going on within the world of HBCU sports that we don't know about and we'll talk about. Exactly. So today the CIAA is largely known for its basketball tournament which this year will be taking place in Baltimore, Maryland again. But well before the basketball tournament became popular, CIAA was known for its football rivalries. You know, Howard Lincoln, known as the Negro Thanksgiving Day Classic, and then, of course, Hampton Lincoln. And so this one photograph can take you down so many historic roads of knowledge, correct? It can. You can research the players. You can research the coaches. You can research the different football rivalries within black college life. And then, of course, you can research the historic polo grounds where they're playing. So besides the the, the Negro football, what other type of uh, events were held at this particular polo ground? There were boxing matches. There were, of course, the infamous Army-Navy games. Joe Lewis is there fighting in the 1940s. The Brown Bomber. And, of course, uh, baseball games would be held there. And before the San Francisco Giants eventually made their move to San Francisco in 1957, they were the New York Giants, and they played there from 1891 to 1957 at the different iterations of the polo grounds. So my famous quote is, who knew? I'm not saying who knew, I'm saying who knew. Um, (laughs) This photograph caught my attention immediately because it said LU 1929, but also who owned this photograph? A man by the name of William Speed Taylor, S-P-E-E-D. He was the coach at Lincoln University from 1929 to 1931. And before that, he was actually a student. He played on the football team as a halfback from 1924 to 1925. And where did he get his earlier athletic prowess from? None other than the famous Colored High School in Baltimore, Maryland. Yes, the Colored High School, today's Douglas High School, where numerous athletes, politicians, educators, and prominent black Baltimoreans have come from. And let's let's throw in some irony. Who coached and interacted with him at the Colored High School and also was a pioneering referee in the Colored Intercollegiate Athletic Association who refed this seminal game? Leonard Ulysses Duck Gibson. If you actually look at several CIAA games, you're going to see L period U period Gibson. That's Leonard Gibson who is going to coach Bill Taylor at the Colored High School. And then, of course, Bill Taylor is going to then have nice meetings with his coach as the umpire um, and some games and the referee at um, different sports while he's coaching at Lincoln. So it's a nice kind of reunion, a nice kind of full circle moment for Bill Taylor and Gibson. And in another podcast, we'll drop some serious knowledge on the life and legacy of Leonard Ulysses Duck Gibson with regard to the Colored YMCA with regard to the CIAA, with regard to what prominent future impactful men in society he mentored, coached, refereed by giving 39 years of his life in Baltimore to the colored high school that went on to become Douglas High School. So getting back to the game, Hampton was actually favored over Lincoln to win this game at the Polo Grounds because in their last 15 matches from 1909 to 1928, they had won 11 of them. So Hampton was highly favored. And of course, you know, if you were if I was a betting person, I probably would have put, some, put my money on Hampton. You know, you win 11 of 15 games. And no, FanDuel did not exist then, okay? And there was no... Also, what I think is really fascinating, the original 
person that wrote on the exterior of the photograph had the correct score, but what did someone later on do with red letter with a red ink pen? They wrote the wrong score. So we had to do meticulous research in the Afro-American. We had to look at the New York Times. We had to look at the Pittsburgh Courier. And well, about, you didn't say Pittsburgh like some people do. You actually said it's my California Pitts- accent. Pittsburgh. Thank you. Yes, the Pittsburgh Courier. So we had to look at three of those sources and to realize that the game was actually 13 to 6 and not 13 to 7. And one source actually had it labeled as 18 to 7. So we, we are owning all of our errors and mistakes. And of course, we make them. But we also try our darndest to be as accurate and as authentic as we possibly can. So like I said earlier, 20,000 people showed up to this game and it was expected to be a record crowd that not only had the polo ground scene, but a record crowd for a black college football game. And just a side note, the black college football games always drew large crowds, not just from the alumni, but you could expect to see the who's who of black America show up at these games like Romare Bearden. Snap. My man, Romeo Bearden, would show up, up in the with t- his wife. You know, they'd be in their nice, you know, expensive fur coats. And Olivia Walker, none other than the daughter of Madam C.J. Walker, would show up to this game. No, no. And then, of course, you'd have very prominent white individuals like John D. Rockefeller, Mrs. William J. Shefflin, and George Foster Peabody that would show up to the games because they were that prominent that the white elite or the, you know, the white prominent people would actually buy tickets too. I mean, they probably have their own section, but that's another story for another time. So let me backtrack for a minute. One of the big draws happened to be the Howard Lincoln game that is a project in its own self. You know, when people think of black college football, they always think of the Negro Thanksgiving Day Classic, which has dominated um, black college football lore for years. Yeah, and so let's go back to the photograph. The photograph is taken somewhere on Lincoln's campus, obviously outside, and the foliage is is, is really thick and beautiful, and we've had a Dickens of a time trying to identify the roster for this 1929 photograph. Right, so we know names, and unfortunately, you know, without yearbook photos, without photos of them later in life, it's kind of hard to place a name to a person's face because, you know, 10 years, 5 years kind of ages you a little bit. But we've been able to pick through and actually find out a little bit about the person and then what they did post-Lincoln. Again, full disclosure, when you think of football pitchers in present day, you think of where there are numbers on each jersey. So then you can do some simple research. Unfortunately, back in 1929, there are no numbers on these uh, uniforms. And you have to realize this is also a black college. And unfortunately, as pioneering as they were as exciting these as these games could be as great as these players were which is always underscored and underrated unfortunately they didn't always have the top equipment they didn't have the top jerseys so when the audience gets to see this photo you'll see that they're basically in plain white and black t-shirts and they might have some equipment underneath but like philip said there's no um, number there's no identifying information on these jerseys to say you know this is Sidnor, this is Johnson, this is Jones. Yeah, and so we'll just drop a name or two of, of, of some of the research that we've been able to glean from what we know. Well, there was a Dr. John T. Sidnor. Well, John T. Sidnor actually went on to be a prominent doctor, and he was a prominent doctor as an intern at Provident Hospital in Baltimore. Yes, the Provident Hospital in Baltimore. One of Baltimore's earliest black-owned hospitals, and it's actually one of the, large, the longest functioning hospitals, and a number of black Baltimore doctors came out of that hospital. So there was Dr. Sidnor coming out of Provident Hospital where he gets his early medical training. He goes on, I believe, to Detroit and eventually to Chicago where he's one of the wealthiest black men in Chicago, owns a very stylish, attractive home. Who knew? 
Right. Drop some more names for us, please. And then there was a Urias, yes, Urias, U-R-I-A-S, Milton Oates. He came out of Philadelphia. So, and actually, in a, a twist of irony and a full circle moment, Oates's grandson, Milton Oates Jr., donated uh, money to his uh, grandfather and father's alma mater back in 2014. That so, is a full circle kind of legacy moment. moment. Oh, going back to Dr. Sidnor, they called him Stretch. I don't know if he was really tall or just mother nickname. Or maybe he had a long reach. And maybe. So- John Stretch Sidnor came out of the class of 1931, so two years after this historic game. He played for the Philadelphia Giants, a professional basketball team. Don't know if it was a black team. Don't know if it was an integrated team. Never heard of it. Another who knew moment, right? He probably had a very short career at this uh, professional basketball team. So, and that was another thing about some of these um, athletes. They were multi-talented. So they just weren't on the football team or the basketball team, but they also played baseball. They could have wrestled as well. But they also had academic prowess as well. I mean, you know, know, you're not going to be just a doctor out of, you know, just because, you know, you got C's and college you were pretty you had to be pretty well qualified to be a black medical doctor at that let's backtrack again didn't you tell me earlier when we were prepping for this podcast that one of the football players ended up on some Quaker team the line coach who was a line coach under coach Taylor was ended up being on a team called the Quakers one of Philadelphia's leading professional football teams he was the only Negro at the time in 1933 so he comes out as a, a coach under Bill Taylor and then goes on to be on this team as the only black person and then trying to do some research on the Philadelphia Quakers I found nothing there's another team called the Philadelphia Quakers but it's in a whole different sport and so I don't even know when this team starts if they had any more black players after this man Ted Walls and basically, that's the only thing I could find on this, is that it, he was on this team in 1933. I'll take it. It's better than nothing. Yeah, it is better than nothing. And one thing that this allows us to do, um, interestingly enough, has been to not only just track these players' lives, but also find out about things you have no clue about. And in this case, the world of professional or semi-pro basketball, baseball, football, wrestling, there were so many different teams that existed during a certain period that don't get any play or any talk, no one talks about them because no one knows about them. They were black. They were integrated. They might have been all white with one black player who came on for like a short time. Tokenism. Right. <laughs> the one black person you, you claim is integrating your team. And so because they don't get any research and no one really knows about them, they kind of quickly kind of fit. Some of them fizzled out within like a year or two. And it, but it did give these players an opportunity to play for a semi-pro professional team after their college careers. Okay, so a couple more. Thank you for that great information. A couple other tidbits. Lincoln University's football program started in 1894. So this is three decades into their football program. They've built up a, a system. They built up a number of very prominent coaches from that three decades. The likes of none other than Fritz Pollard, who was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame about a number of years ago. And also Paul Robeson had a connection that people don't often realize. And then, of course, there's Bill Speed Taylor, who was a coach for a number of years. But there's also a really prominent star player by the name of Jazz Bird that people don't talk about a lot. Right. Franz Jazz Bird, who in this 1929 article, when they're referencing the football game, they talk about the immortal Jazz Bird because he was... I mean, he was, he he was, was an bad. amazing player. Just bad. Amazing, probably even by today's standards. Bad to the bone. Back to Lincoln University's sports legacy. It's so difficult to continue a proud legacy for multiple generations. So, unfortunately, Lincoln's sports legacy with regard to football has waned. It's gone up and down and right. to the point that 
at some point they no longer were playing football and they reinstituted football back in the year 2008. So look at that long legacy from 1894. So, you know, I'm, we're not being critical, but to, to be successful with winning records and producing star players and coaches for all that time is, is really almost impossible, wouldn't you say? You know, it really is, actually. And so it's remarkable that they did produce these amazing players, and they had a, a number of very talented coaches who stayed anywhere from one to five years sometimes at the most. Because although the teams were amazing and the players were just outstanding, often the funding wasn't there, the salaries weren't there, and unfortunately with Bill Taylor, he hits a little bit of controversy where he wants to extend his contract in 1931, and the university is like, uh, we really don't want you to stay anymore, so we're going to kind of kick you to the curb and bring somebody else in. So this is just really a snapshot to try to get you excited about the richness that exists within the realm of HBCU sports, CIAA, history and legacy, and the idea of documenting your history through artifact. Photograph leads us to this. I saw this at an auction and it spoke to me and I said, I got to have this rare photograph. Oh, that was inspiring. So thank you for those very inspiring words. In on some more inspiring notes. Oh, my Lord. Bill Taylor transitions to the next life in 1981, and the Baltimore Afro-American wrote an article. Of course, the very prominent Sam Lacey, who was a noted sports writer for decades, wrote a very, very nice article that talked about the fact that Bill Taylor was, in essence, a giant. He was a sports giant, but oh. he was also a giant in terms of the fact that he inspired these men to be their best selves. And in essence, Leonard Ulysses Duck Gibson did the same, where he inspired these men to not just be great sports figures, but also to be great men, to go out and if you're going to do something, do something great and do something impactful and influential, just like Bill Taylor did. And I think the remarkable aspect about this article was that these men, after they graduated from Lincoln, could not actually go on to play for the NFL, Major League Baseball. So, you know, even though they could have had very inspiring and very prominent athletic careers in college they couldn't have a very prominent athletic career post-college but still there was something in them that allowed them to play with their best and bill taylor inspired that and then he brought that out in them and it opens up the pandora's box or a trunk full of questions about where did some of the players go how far did they make it in semi-pro and did they get into coaching did they get into refereeing and umpiring did they go mainstream and pursue graduate degrees to do something completely different? So again, stick with us with the Artifacts Journey as we uncover more aspects of HBCU life in general, as well as CIAA and letters, photographs, autograph books, diplomas, and yearbooks. So, you know, continue to stick with us and learn, be, inspi us, right, be, inspired. be inspired, be influenced to go out and do great things and just enjoy some great history. So that's a wrap. I hope you've enjoyed this and that it will inspire you. To All right. As always, I'm Veronica Carr. You are? Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> and I am Ted Baxter live from WJM TV in Minneapolis, Minnesota. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.